You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. So our guest today is Linnea Gandhi. She's a returning guest to the podcast and actually a dear friend. Um, she's the founder of Behavioral Sight, which is a boutique advisory helping businesses integrate insights and methodologies from behavioral science um, and their research and decision-making processes. Um, she used to be managing director of the TGG group, uh, where she collaborated with leading psychologists, I mean, like major folks, to develop behaviorally informed tools and experiments. Um, in the acknowledgments to their extraordinary new book, Noise, uh, authors Daniel Kahneman, uh, Olivier Saboni, and Cass Sunstein note that Linnea served as their, quote, chief of staff in researching and writing the book. And Noise is an extraordinary um, book that I highly recommend. It, it, and, and really, you should read Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, Kahneman's a uh, book that he, he basically won the Nobel Prize for. Uh, this is a follow-up uh, difference between bias and noise, which we get into, um, but it's really great stuff. Enjoy. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance. And the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Essay End. Unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Lania Gandhi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kelly. It's great to be here. Great to have you back. You were like True. What, third podcast we did maybe yeah it was so long ago um it's lovely to be back and seeing you hearing you <laughs> so well we're seeing each other we're on zoom it's true uh it's not the same as in person <laughs> um so a couple of years back you sent me a few draft chapters of the book noise um to offer feedback uh and this of course made me feel incredibly special like i had some expertise that you want to draw on and that is until i read the book and got to the part where the research is presented, and I'm using my words, that essentially a bunch of regular dummies are more effective in their judgments than any so-called expert. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You're no dummy, though. Oh, thank you. So what, what's the deal with that research? Oh, with uh, dummies being better than experts? Yes. Which specific part are you referring to? Which specific? It's, it's, it's this idea of predictors, right? You have all these procrastinators and or the, uh, these, these people, experts who make predictions uh, into the future about events. And, and then studies were done that showed that aggregating actually just regular human beings and their, their sort of guesses as to what would happen oh. was more effective and closer to the, the truth of what happened. Sure. I mean, look, wisdom of the crowds 
is something that does generally work. You get a lot of people to make an inference independently of each other, though, and you can't have them be systematically worse than 50-50 at making yeah. this judgment. It's got to follow Condorcet's rule. But, yeah, that quism of crowds generally works really well and can certainly outperform most experts. I think one thing to note is, you know, you do have these people called super forecasters yeah. who just – you know, it doesn't even mean they have expertise necessarily. It's that they're open to considering multiple viewpoints, to changing their mind, to updating their beliefs on this constant basis, which doesn't come naturally to many of us. And I would say even the author, one of the authors of the book, Noise, Daniel Kahneman, he is someone I've seen update his opinion in a way that many people don't. I, I don't know if he's a super forecaster. Right. But he will change his mind. You know, we got feedback from people like you and others. And he goes, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Okay, I was wrong. I mean, who says that? You know, well, you have to have someone that. Like, especially someone like Adam, who's a, a, I know. a Nobel Prize winner. I mean. And so I think what happens, and this is me, you know, this is me more, more exploratory opining rather than any research I've personally done. I think what happens is, is potentially, you know, the more expert we get at a topic, meaning uh, time we've spent in it, right? This sort of respect expert, as you will, that they talk in the book, the harder it is to abandon your viewpoint, your priors, the belief set that you formed up from your, you know, relatively narrow experience. And so you may not be as likely to do this sort of updating um, appropriately as new information comes in as someone who may not have that grounding to begin with. But not to say that experts are worse than lay people, um, but, you know, in terms of the crowd of lay people. So when we first met at the University of Chicago and we were just starting up the second science project, uh, we were rooting a lot of our work in bias. And, and this, is, this is when I started reading all, all the literature and understanding bias. And this book, Noise, is specifically about the idea that there is a difference between bias and noise. So new language, this is not mm -hmm. what people are, are talking about. So can you take us, like, what, what's the difference? I really love how the authors put it, you know, bias is in the foreground, it's the pattern that pops out to us, noise is in the background, it kind of just looks random, it's unexplained, and so we don't focus on it. Um, probably the best way to think about it, though, in terms of error is bias is a shared error. It's just a statistical concept that means, you know, everybody is optimistic, everybody is too pessimistic, everybody is overconfident, everybody is underconfident, you know, everyone is shifting in the same direction. It's an a shift of the average mm -hmm. versus noise. That's the spread. That's the standard deviation in the data, the scatter, which is, you know, again, usually just, oh, that's the error term. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're not really looking at that. We're not going to focus on that. That's just in the background. And what this book is trying to do is to say, hey, you know, the variability in the world that we're trying to understand, explain, notice you know, we really understand very little of it often. We're focusing on these systematicities because we can explain it, but that error term tends to be the majority of the variability left over. Why aren't we focusing more on it and the cost that it can incur to individuals in these large systems like healthcare or the judicial system? So let's talk about the judicial system because this is, this is a, a point where you do find a lot of noise. Um, th there's various things about judges when they're handing out um, sentencing that is actually really um, upsetting when you dig into it. Can you talk about some of those, those, those things like when they're hungry? Yeah, well, there's, there's some back and forth on that specific study, but, yeah. and I should say, this isn't just specific to judges. It's just judges are easy to get data on. 
Right. Doctors are easy to get data on. So by right. no means is the book trying to pick on these professions. It's just there's a lot of data. You, me, we would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So there are these what you might call random influences in your environment, your mood, whether your football team won last weekend, whether it's sunny out, that can have these you know slight impacts on your decision making. In the judicial system, one of the studies that I really hit home for me was um, the idea of if I've uh, granted asylum to someone of your nationality, excuse me, your nationality just prior, I'm now yep. less likely to grant it to you right now in front of me. Even though the order in which I'm seeing people requesting asylum is random and what I've been assigned to is random and it, it, it's not like someone's evaluating me <laughs> for these streaks. And that just is so incredibly unfair at the individual level. We don't notice it, though, because we focus on bias. We say, look at all the judges. Look at all of the cases that they're judging. Do we see people being you know, overly stringent or uh, overly lenient in their cases? We, we never think about, oh, well, how about for each specific decision that's happening? Maybe on average they're calibrated. But you know, if you're half the time stringent and half the time uh, lenient, then you're never actually accurate. But the average looks like it's accurate. And so what noise is trying to say is, hey, that spread, it doesn't wash out. Statistically, on average, it looks like it's washing out. But the cost adds up for every individual data point, which are actually lives in this case. And we have to start paying attention to it. And, and the, in terms of the data, too, is that this is one of the reasons that you can't measure noise in singular decisions, right? Because you can't aggregate the information. Well, exactly. Noise, uh, statistically, is looking at spread. To have spread, I need two data points. But I think the argument that they make so well in that chapter is a singular decision is just a repeated decision that's happened once. There are all these other counterfactual worlds that we could be in, counterfactual podcasts we could be having right now, where maybe... I did more vocal warm-ups before this discussion with you and I sound differently, or maybe I got a really, you know, negative email prior to this discussion, all these other contextual factors or personal stable factors that, you know, might be different. We never see those because we don't live in a groundhog day world, but that doesn't mean that they could have influenced us. It doesn't mean that if we think about a singular decision, all those other factors we focus on with recurring decisions aren't there. They're just literally impossible to see. Um, can we? I want to talk about some of the elements of, of when, when you talk about the analysis of noise, because um, there are things like pattern noise and occasion <laughs> noise. Um, those, I think, are interesting. And, and I'd love you to give these sort of MBA free throw example, because I think that's a that's one that really will come alive with people. They'll, they'll get it. Oh, I'm not going to be able to give you that one because I, okay. I don't do that one. But I can um, I can tell it to you with the NBA playoffs. Yeah. I was thinking about that the other day. Please. Um, so, OK, so. Well, I think there's a, it's interesting to think about noise. There are these different labels that we're starting to put on levels or types of noise. And sort of the simpler way I like to think about it for, you know, your starter course is that there's noise between people mm-hmm. and there's noise within a person. You know, there's okay. low consensus and there's low consistency. And it's like, to me, that's the most, you know, intuitive way of thinking about it is you and I might be different in different ways if we see the same case, uh, if we're making the same bet on the playoffs for the NBA, which is, you know, going on uh, at least right now during the taping. Um, Or if, you know, uh, I was making that bet on different points in time. Again, you know, maybe I just got a tax refund uh, and I'm going to make that bet in it. I might influence it differently. So low consensus and low consistency are the highest level ones. 
And then if we're starting to break it down in the terms of the book, like you mentioned, there's, there's noise that's a stable individual difference. Maybe you, Kelly, you're always overconfident in your betting. Like you're just mo- always overconfident. That's who you are. And I'm always underconfident. I'm very risk averse. That's that low consensus piece. And that's what they're talking about when they're talking about uh, level noise. Yeah. But you can also have uh, what we talk about, which is um, a pattern noise, which is that whenever Kelly is betting on a team wearing a blue jersey, I'm making that up, yes. he tends to be really overconfident, right? There's a pattern for you that is not only different from me, but also different for different cases. It's an interaction effect, effectively, if you're thinking about a regression. And that's effectively stable. Like we see over time that that happens for you and blue teams, but it's at the case level. It's not across all teams. It's just when teams are wearing that blue jersey. And then there's occasion noise. And that one really can capture the imagination, like you mentioned with the judges. That's the mood you're in. Um, whether I just got that tax windfall, these things that happen from moment to moment that aren't stable um, over time uh, or over a specific type of case, but can still influence our judgment. And so there's, again, stuff that's like Kelly for all cases, for all bets, for all decisions. Yeah. There's Kelly for a type of case or a feature of a case, like these blue jerseys. They really appeal to him and, you know, influence his decision-making. And then there's the stuff around Kelly, his, his context, this occasion, moment-to-moment thing that can change. All right. So you know I'm fascinated by groups. This is, this is a thing. So, so we've talked about the individual, individual noise. I want to sort of dig into group noise. And, and in particular, and we, we share both a, we share a love of imp- improvisation and, and and one of the things that I was always talking about with the team at University of Chicago was, you know, they don't have a lot of research on sort of small, effective teams like we have the ensembles at, at Second City. Um, but uh, I thought like like the music download study was a fascinating oh. way, right? Of, of Duncan Watts. Yeah. yeah t- talk about that. Oh, I love that study. And full disclosure, I'm thrilled that I, I get to work with him as part of my PhD. So oh, yeah, I love his work. He was on the pod. Oh, he's great. I love him so much. Um, he, he, I love the way he thinks about research. So this uh, is a, a lovely study that demonstrates how kind of like that ordering effect I talked about with judges where, you know, the past one that I saw might influence the next one I do. Um, the social proof or the ranking of the songs that you listen to does influence your judgment. And the research team set this up by basically making a fake music app like a Spotify and pushing songs into it that were legitimate songs and what they were able to do is they were able to create mini worlds so they took a world of let's say i'm making up the number 100 people like you and me and gave them a list of the songs in ranked order and then they mixed up the ranking and they gave it to another group of people and then they mixed up the ranking again and gave it to another group of people and looked at what did people listen to and what did they download and what did they rate as a good song and it was remarkable if you look at the ultimate ratings that happened at the end of the day from each of these little worlds of people listening to the music, the rankings were different. Mm-hmm. Now, something that was like a really popular song never made it to the bottom. Right? It was right. always near the top. And something that was really a bad song never really made it to the top. Uh, but, you know, all other combinations, they said, really happened. And so the, I don't want to say arbitrariness, but the, 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 the randomness of when you happen to, let's say, log into Spotify and listen to that top 40 hit list or any other dynamic uh, list is actually going to influence your own judgment of it. And we we see this in real world, like the way that petitions happen in the UK. Hmm. People can put up a petition on their website 
And if you can get a certain number of signatures, it actually uh, triggers different actions by parliament, whether they have to write you a letter about it or actually debate it on the floor. And the, uh, the faster you can get that many people, like on the first day, the better you do. Because people are seeing, again, this social proof, but the randomness of who happens to log in and when and where is really going to influence the popularity. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that first speaker stuff that I was so fascinated yes. by, realizing that the, the, the outsized influence of the first person to speak inside a room. I'm nodding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, and I was talking about this with colleagues, you know, after I read the book, I'm like, we really have to consider this because I, it, it, it makes, it's so logical. And I hadn't ever sort of considered the idea before um, other than sort of priming and anchoring, which, which, which we understand, but, but yeah, that, that, that um, and, and in particular, we were talking too about, uh, cause you have a section on, on, <laughs> on hiring and we're actually doing a bunch of hiring at second city. And so we're doing interviews. And so I, I, I took all these notes from that section and yes. so our folks, cause I'm like, Oh no, we're probably doing this very poorly. I mean, I'm just, yes, yes, yes. So many things off of that. One thing I want to piggyback on that I think is a point that at least when we were pulling together the book, I, I'm not an author, just to clarify your listeners. I was sort of like the project manager behind all of it. Um, we really struggle with this idea that psychological bias can drive noise, which mm. like makes smoke come out of your ears. You say, wait, bias drives noise? What? Um, and what you just mentioned with group dynamics and, and of course, the, the study of, um, of cascades in the music lab really demonstrates how a, a, a systematicity, a bias of who speaks first doesn't necessarily drive statistical noise. It doesn't necessarily drive across all group meetings a shift in the mean one way or the other, because the person who speaks first is random, or rather it varies across the different yeah. groups by who happened to show up. And, and so you end up getting these, it's, it, I think a little bit can be confusing is to think at the end of one, at the smallest unit, if we were omniscient, everything would be explainable. Everything would be a, a bias, so to speak, a pattern where we saw this happened and led to this conclusion. But then when we add time, more instances, or people, a larger group, we start to see, yeah, these biases are happening for people who speaks first, anchoring, ease of recall, but the actual stimulus, the person who speaks first, the anchor I'm given, the thing that I was exposed to that's easy to recall is variable, such that all these psychological biases we know as we create more observations actually drives a standard deviation, not a mean shift, or noise, not bias. I don't know if I even explained that well enough to be clear, but that's the part I think that can be really hard to wrap your mind around. Well, the, the, I mean, the, the whole thing is, I mean, there, there's a quote, hold on, I gotta find this. Uh, yeah. Quote, most of us, most of the time live with the unquestioned belief that the world looks as it does because that's the way it is. Of course. <laughs> you yes. Naive that. realism right there. Yeah. I mean, that is, you know, and I, there's good reasons we're telling us are these, these stories to, to make sense of the world because it's, it's, um, it doesn't make sense. Well, it, it also, it gives us a sense of learning, mastery, mm -hmm. control, and meaning. And it's yeah. the way we're programmed. If we, as children, we just questioned all the time whether what we were picking up fast was true. We wouldn't go up that learning curve so quickly because usually that pattern recognition is adaptive. Yeah. Um, but 
as you can see, as you start to get older and you're looking at data and thinking about these situations, it's, it's not. And I, I think even research perpetuates this to some extent. We focus on effect sizes. We focus on mean shifts. You know, effect sizes are standardized mean shifts, but we don't go, well, what's happening for that one individual in the study this way or that under individual in the study that way? Or what's, again, what's happening across all judges or all doctors, but you forget if it's a bell curve, there are people in both sides. Mm -hmm. There are people who are getting the wrong diagnosis one way or the other. Not everybody is living in a line at the perfect accuracy level. And when we look at aggregate data, which is what we often do in research and policy making, we miss out that the costs of noise actually add up. Um, in the section uh, uh, about noiseless rules, I, I mm -hmm. love uh, the concept there that I was introduced to around broken leg ex exceptions. Oh, yeah, yeah, meals, meals, yeah. broken leg cue. Tell, tell our audience about that, because I think it's, it's a really, it's a funny way of explaining a very, like, a, like, oh, that makes perfect sense now that you've told me this way. Yeah, I think it's a cute story, too. I mean, it was um, traditionally told with a movie theater, but we can do it with Second City, even. Let's do maybe it with I, Maybe I know that uh, Kelly is going to go see the Second City main stage every Saturday night, even if you've seen the show before, right? Every yep. Saturday night, he's a diehard fan, wants to support the theater. He goes every Saturday night. Um, and so I build a model that knows all about Kelly, right, based on the data I have on him. And the model is going to predict that every Saturday night, Kelly's going to go. Except the model doesn't realize that, oh, my gosh, two days ago, Kelly broke his leg, you know, jogging down the street mm. uh, or, you know, go, you know, going on a ladder to fix his roof. Um, Neither of those things are going to happen. And I was just, I'm, to, I'm like, oh, no, now he's going to feel like he has to run. <laughs> I, I tripped so, over something. Probably. Yeah, so the model doesn't have that variable in it. Then that's yeah. something that we can observe as humans. And so what I like about Neil's point there with broken leg cues is sort of, Two things. One is that, you know, models aren't perfect. They aren't going to have all the variables and all the information in the world, which is why it is helpful to have a human team monitoring and updating it. If we find that these broken legs, so to speak, are happening a lot, like racial bias, for instance, right. or right. gender bias, which we see isn't, you know, is sometimes embedded in these models. So you need human intervention to realize that that's not being accurately captured and fix it. But I think what they often talk about in the book and what, we, you know, decision scientists talk about is that we overly rely on thinking that, oh, I know all these broken legs that these models don't understand. You know, I'm so omniscient. Um, and we rely on these sort of conditional rules of thumb of if Kelly is wearing a hat and he's hungry, then he'll go to see Second City main stage. All of those exceptions and rules, you know, we adhere to them imperfectly. We develop them from imperfect data. And so it ends up undermining our mental models. We would be better off just relying on the algorithm, even if it's imperfect. Do you know why I love the broken leg exception? Why? Because it means that the robots might not win. <laughs> that, that's what I take. They won't that. win. No, I mean, I, I, I really think that algorithms are really useful. I'm trying to adopt, you know, basic algorithms, rules of thumb even in my own decision making. But mm -hmm. it makes me feel good to know, like, I'm making them and I'm updating them. And they're there to save me time and energy so I can do other stuff. Um, but you need a human often to supervise part of the model creation. I'm sure machine learning experts would argue differently, and they, they might be right. It's not my expertise. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, the, the computers are 
not funny and they can't improvise. And that that's, I mean, maybe they'll learn one day and that's to our detriment or at least my personal detriment. Um, but they can't give uh, you a hug and they can't give you a hug. Yeah. True. Um, all right. I know we talked about super forecasters, but I kind of want to dig into Philip Tetlock and the good, ju- uh, good judgment project, because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff mm-hmm. in, inside there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the things about the super forecasters that, they they say is that they are in perpetual beta. <laughs> That's powerful. Right? They're just highly reflective individuals. It's it's so incredible. It's intellectual, it's intellectual curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. One, mm-hmm. one aspect of it. Updating. Updating is huge. Updating. Uh they 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 talk they they also talk to other people, right? They get get their information from a variety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's funny when you you know, when, when I read these books and not all of them have the same effect, but in this case, literally like a second ago, I helped a colleague redo their LinkedIn um, profile language about, about language. They wanted it to be funny, but not like, yeah. And so I did my version and she's like, okay, are we good to go? I go, please send it to like three, four people. (laughs) And that was my thing. And that's like, and it got, it got improved, you know, because you know, people sort of weighed in. Um, and this is also in the section where uh, uh, I think it's here, maybe it's later in the book, uh, where I, I forget who, who the story was about, but it was the discovery of white coat syndrome, um, which was uh, a a guy a, a guy uh, uh, was uh, going to his doctor uh, who was recording high blood pressure. Yeah, yeah, that's right, right, right. And then and then over and over again, and it's not getting better until he moves to another city, gets a different doctor, and this doctor implies that he he goes why don't you test your blood pressure at home and it's fine and because he's got yeah. white coat syndrome right he gets yeah right goes up when he visits the doctor i mean this is this is the part i mean this is beyond even the book this is something i think that's really fascinating is an algorithm or a mental model is only as good as the variables you put in it mm-hmm. but you know and i think one of the things that I feel is very freeing about the idea of trying to look for noise and fix noise is I don't have to know which biases are happening. I don't need to know all the explanatory variables. Like as long as I observe variability that isn't desired, I don't need to explain it. I need to figure out if it's the white coat or if he actually has blood pressure. I mean, in this case, you want to, I I just follow a better decision process and I'm going to get rid of, some of these um, negative influences to begin with. Like, how am I supposed to know it's the white, you know? Yeah. I have to try other things. It is very hard and not natural for us to look for disconfirming information. Mm-hmm. Um, well, don't, I, I mean, I would imagine that's what drew you to improvisation because you have to practice that over and over again. Oh, yes. Uh, improvisation was very uncomfortable and very good, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, just exactly. But really being able to let go and I think what's lovely about improvisation is there's no right answer. It's good process. Yeah. yeah. It's good yeah, process. Yeah. It's vulnerability. It's, there isn't right, some right variable you have to be, be looking for. You just have to be present. I mean, I don't know why I'm saying that to you. You're obviously, <laughs> this is your field. No, I mean, it, it, I, I, you know, I mean, there, there are so many models and statistics inside this book that I was like, yeah, I think I'm getting the gist of this, but it's, you know, cause it's a, it's a lot. There's this really heady stuff. Um, but yeah, following on that idea too, the other thing about improv is this wisdom of crowds thing. Because the thing that we know is when we get the end to the end of our 10 to 12 week process of creating a second city review, mm. 
we have beta tested all the comedy in front of the audiences and we know what's going to hit because it's been hitting. And then, and then, but occasionally it doesn't. And, and sometimes that's like, oh, it's hot in the theater. Mm, like mm. the air conditioning went down, you know, or like something happened. I mean, I'll never forget. I don't know if you and I ever talked about this, that we were, we were supposed to open a show on September 13th, 2001 Oof. Uh, called Embryos on Ice or Fetus Don't Fail Me Now, because that, that's what everyone was talking about. And so then we had to look at the show and be like, okay, any reference to an airplane, out. Um, we had a scene where a, a, a doctor was dancing with a corpse, out. And, and then even when we put up the show, we thought we thought through all this stuff until we just saw it and we're like, nope, we can't, I, oh, you can't say this. You can't say this word. That changed later, um, you know, but, but, you know, and, 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 you know, uh, my wife, Anne's stuff around comedy theory around pain and distance and time. So, you know, it was much easier for us to talk about the events of nine 11 here in Chicago, uh, than it was when someone from New York came and visited because yeah. they didn't have the same kind of physical distance. They didn't have. The yeah. Distance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear for that example, but you know, sometimes your joke won't land and you won't know why. And yet we can't live not knowing why, right? We, we search for a reason. We search for the pattern. We search for the bias. And I think we're wasting, to some extent, we're wasting a lot of time doing that. Just like, yep, there was some variability. Let me fix my process. I don't know exactly why that one end, that one observation, you know, went wrong. Can I go back to my process and see if there's something I need to adjust or stick to that I haven't done versus spending hours obsessing over exactly what happened in that point in time? Yep, yep, yep. All right, so I mean, like going through this, and you said you just recently reread the book. Um, have you applied stuff to your day to day life from the book? <laughs> I mean, I, I for sure have applied the decision hygiene pieces, which was something we, I mean, I always kind of thought about, but I never thought about it as a collective. Yeah, I actually applied it to. Um, we built a, so we built a course based on the concepts in the book, not based on the book. Cause I'd been teaching it for the last three years yep. and um, intentionally did not reread the book before doing that. And we've never built a course before. So like you, we were kind of like in perpetual beta for a while, user testing it and building it, but we didn't know what we didn't know. And we didn't have good decision hygiene in every process. And so I've been finding myself being inconsistent in like writing the script for different parts, I'll write a draft and then I would send it to my colleague Yumi who would then send it back with edits. And then I would, I would tell her, Oh, I don't really like this one word or I don't like this thing. And she goes, you wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Oh my God, I'm so inconsistent. Um, You know, or we just, you know, keep finding, like you said, you know, you went through and you tried to pull out all of the references that could suggest nine 11. I have gone through these videos and content so many times. Um, but I hadn't been using a checklist until recently to like uh, say, these are yeah. structure, right? Yeah. Structure of what to focus on. Um, I found a math error last week after mm. working on this for like six to nine months, like a really dumb math error. So, you know, just, it, it's been a reminder of it, you have to eat your own dog food. I've, I've got to be using the same stuff that I'm teaching. And so finding other ways to integrate checklists, um, independent assessment is a huge one. It's so easy to integrate, right? You and I make a judgment separately and then we share and talk about it. Um, you just even those two things I think can save people a lot of time and avoid a lot of error. <clears throat> and it doesn't take that much time to set up. So you know, I've been doing that more. Yeah. I, you know, it was relatively 
easy to make the leap uh, of why improvisational exercises uh, could be a great um, use for people to understand their biases. Um, I have yet to make that leap to, for noise. Hmm. Uh, it, it could exist. Oh. It could. Ex- I wonder if you have. Have you thought about that? I mean, uh, I think a, a fun one is the game. Forgive me for not knowing the name of it. Where okay. we're we're doing a scene and someone offside says change, and you have to oh, say like, a different that line. Back. Take yeah. that back. Yep. I think it makes you aware of all the different versions of that scene that could have played out. All those counterfactuals that, you know, a scene feels like a singular decision, but it's really a recurring decision or recurring, you know, occasion or whatever situation that could have happened many times. It just happened to happen only once. So uh, to me, it's actually, it's the beauty of variability in action. There's, there isn't really error in it. I think maybe that's the problem, like not problem, but the tent, I don't see improv as having error, but you can see variability within it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think what we're trying to teach people is there, there's always error. Um, and so what we try to do is unleash you from uh, your judgment self to still go forward and, and, and try it, try different things out. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, this is, this is the thing that's always missing with any of the sort of great insights that, that we get handed to us is that then we need to find ways to practice them in our day-to-day existence. And if we don't have that, it's, 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 we're just going to go back to where, where we go. I completely agree. So I hope people who read this book and they get to the section on all the different decision hygiene techniques, I hope that they pick at least one and implement it. And it can be as easy as a calendar reminder before meeting to have everybody Vote independently rather than having a big group discussion. You know, it, it can be creating checklists for, you know, for recruiting, right? What are the things that you're looking for in a candidate? Just physically having it there when you're doing the interview. It can be simple, structural things like that. But if we just rely on our memory, it's not going to happen. All right. So what are you up to now? You're, you're, you're at Wharton, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am juggling multiple jobs, <laughs> as usual. Yes, you are. Yeah, I'm doing a little bit of teaching for Chicago Booth's exec ed program still, um, mm-hmm. just, you know, the classic decision making. And then I'm, I'm almost finished with my first year of my PhD at Wharton, studying with people like Duncan Watts and Katie Milkman, Angela Duckworth, um, Marie Schweitzer, a little bit with the super forecasting team, like, like, basically, my heroes are all there, yeah. and trying to absorb as much as I can. Um, doing some really fun field research um, with the behavior change for good around COVID vaccination right now. Um, And uh, running a business. (laughs) Hey, did Maurice, I don't know, does Maurice know that you uh, know us in Second City? I don't know. I mean, I should, I've been, I don't know. It is such a small world though. Like I, we're now doing work with Annie Duke too, Maurice and I, and I didn't know he knew Annie. Like, Everything is just coming together. I know. So are they working with you as well? So Maurice, so um, I don't know if you saw Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis's book around uh, they're from Stanford and it's around humor uh, in, in life and business. And the opening story is about this group of academics, including Maurice, who come to Second City um, uh, to basically be led over a weekend, immersive weekend and workshops led by Anne and I. Um, and, oh. and, and so, uh, so, 
that, that sort of is the beginning of the book. And then, you know, there's other stuff that with us, but Maurice and I stayed in touch and there's a study this is right before COVID. He wanted to do a study. Uh, and the idea he had is, can we measure uh, whether the students coming into second city classes, beginning classes, level A, um, if they come in with a growth mindset versus a mm. fixed mindset, um, let's, let's figure out which they have. And the, the, proposition or, or the thought that they were going to, they have, which I agree with, is that people with a fixed mindset would not develop well. And people with a growth mindset would, they would just score better. Um, and then we just, you know, everything went crazy. But I, it's something I'd really like to revisit because I think it is, you know, we talk so much about improvisation, that's, that's a passion, but I also feel that in comedy making, um, and which we, we do through improvisation and other, in other ways, um, is very much like if, if you have a fixed mindset, you become a stand-up because <laughs> you, you don't, you don't uh, know oh, of course. Well, well with others. Oh, that's, I mean, uh, actually that, well, so, okay. So A, yes. And we should, we should get that started again. Let's get that going. But B, that reminds me of teaching actually. Uh-huh. I, you said stand-up. I actually, I have, there's talks that I do and workshops I lead. And there's teach, there's like, and then there's like bigger courses I run. And I, I completely agree. I have some talks that are like off the shelf. I have honed them. Mm-hmm. I have timed them. They are my standard routine. And I actually, to some, sometimes I feel safer giving that, right? Because right. I know it's not going to do poorly. And I get more nervous when I'm going to improvise with a group. But I think I get more good vibes, if you know what I mean, with I the do. improv. Even with the standard routine, when I'm able to play off the audience, it just feels way better. I had never thought of that, though, as fixed in growth mindset sort of in action um i really love that i hope that the science is there because it intuitively is appealing it's a pattern i recognize hopefully it's not just random (laughs) all right so you know we always end the podcast with a yes and story now you've already done that so i'm going to give you oh yeah oh dear you can either um here's your options you can share another yes and story uh you can share like one or two books that you think we should all read and get excited about or you can end with anything you want. <laughs> oh, wow. I think my life has been yes and this whole year, to be completely honest. Your, your um, life has been yes and for like three years. For a long time. And I, I mean, I'd be curious to your thoughts on this, if you can do it within the ending of this. Is you know, I said yes and to the, to the book. I mean, actually... Danny didn't say, Linnea, will you work on this book with us? He said, Linnea, is there a clone of you? Is there someone like you who could do this book with us? And I was like, but what about me? <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of squeezed myself in there with a yes, a, a yes, please, may I? Yep. Um, but like I said, yes, and to the PhD. I said, yes, and to keeping the business going. A yes, and to different clients. Yes, and to different workshops. Yes, and to starting a course. Once the question is like, if you say yes and to too many things, are you really saying yes? You know, do you start effectively saying no to the things already on your plate because you're not actually present with the capacity to say yes to right. all of them? I, I would, I don't know if that's something that you thought about with that phrase. Yeah. Well, so I've, I've had a number of podcast guests lately around um, boundaries and resilience. Mm. And there's a lot of no's that we need to be, uh, uh, we, 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 sometimes we say yes too much. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I often warn people in, in my talks that, you know, yes, and is a mindset, it's not the words. And also it's, it's 
the beginning. It's it's not mm-hmm. all the way through by mm-hmm. any stretch because you need to be a ruthless editor. Um, but I think you know uh, finding ways to be um, confident and positive with our nose yeah. is something that also doesn't come easily to us. So you're right that the, sometimes the yes and should have been a no, and it's not, so it's not really a yes and at all because we're not we're not yes anding ourselves. We're yes anding some something else that's outside. or or we're yes anding a uh, uh, for me. I think for me yes and or sorry, I, there's a myopic yes and and there's a holistic yes and. Yeah. When I think about each discrete activity, I could say yes to. They're all be- like unbelievable and amazing and people to connect with. But then if you do it in the context of the portfolio, it's different. So actually, to bring it right back to the book at the end, I think the thing we all need to start saying yes and to is using these strategies more. Because, you know, broaden your viewpoint, get take the outside view, broaden the set, use relativity, you know, have that more big picture view when making decisions. And you'll, you'll probably say yes and to, to more accurate things. So, Linnea, if people want to um, try to give you more work that you shouldn't take, where do they reach you? Uh, they can connect with me at uh, my email, linnea.gandhi at gmail.com. Uh, they can check out my website, which is a behavioral site.com, which is impossible to spell. So you it's not impossible to spell. It's just that word has so many different versions of it, but yeah, behavioral oh, site so. is the company and I've got, you know, honestly, I've got amazing woman. Um, it's actually all female company right now, uh, not by design, but because they're amazing women uh, who are her doing the bulk of the work and they're fantastic. So you can reach out and I can connect you with them. Check out our course, give us feedback on the course. Cause we, like you said, will be in perpetual beta even once it's launched. Um, and yeah, any ideas, feedback, I complaints. Um, I love all of it. <laughs> Conversation <laughs> is always fun. Linnea Gandhi, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Kelly. Great to be here. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive